According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, the screen says Luke 7, so I guess that's right. Luke 7, 11 through 17. We are wrapping up this morning the raising of this widow's son. And uh, we'll get our first look at uh, the paragraph that follows this with the encouragement to John the Baptist. Uh, I don't have slides prepared for John the Baptist. I don't think we'll really get that far, but I don't mind taking a first look at it without without having slides available. Also, I want to be able to review some things here this morning when it comes to glory and the glory of God. It's mentioned in this context that in verse 16 that fear gripped them all and they began glorifying God, uh, saying a great prophet has arisen among us and God has visited his people. So we need to deal with what glorifying God is all about, recognizing how they are, in fact, uh, citing Scripture, how they are applying the Word of God to their lives and their present circumstances, and in doing that, they are glorifying God. There's a lot of weird ideas out there about what it means to glorify God, or what does it mean to praise, or what does it mean to worship, and they have these things, they even call them praise and worship services and so forth. But what do they mean by that? And and uh, what is it about that external activity that makes it worship Whereas other external activity is not considered to be worship, even though the Word of God says it is. <laughs> so, are we injecting our own human definitions into these things? And if that's the case, why are we doing that? So, we'll, uh, I imagine we'll have the time today to be able to cover all of that material. Before we begin, let's take time for silent prayer to assure that we're filled with the Spirit. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to assemble together this morning. And we, we thank you for the prayer time, Father, and the provision there. It's been an interesting week, and we've got these, uh, these assignments that have been given to us. We thank you for the privilege we have to come alongside uh, brothers and sisters in Christ during a time of their earthly sorrow. I thank you that we can fellowship over the truth of your word and the, the blessed hope of the resurrection in Jesus Christ. I thank you for... Uh, all the ways that your word comes alive, not just not just when we academically study it, Father, but when uh, when it becomes real to us in in the day of application. We pray now that you would set aside distractions, uh, Father. We've done the external things we can. We've killed the ringers on the telephones and and other things, but Father, uh, we pray that you might remove every distraction and allow us to concentrate upon the truth of your word. And we thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. Luke chapter 7. This is episode 19 in the Galilean ministry. Uh, only covered in the Gospel of Luke, not found in Matthew, Mark, or John. Let's go through it one more time here. Verse 11. Soon afterwards, he went to a city called Nain, and his disciples were going along with him, accompanied by a large crowd. Now, as he approached the gate of the city, a dead man was being carried out. The only son, the only begotten son, same language we're accustomed to. The only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a sizable crowd from the city was with her. When the Lord saw her, he felt compassion for her, and said to her, Do not weep. Uh, I really want to launch into a full study on bowels and uh, other innards there that uh, splanknon represents, or the verb splanknizomai. It was dealt with in Spokane, actually, so Terry heard some of this, uh, where John Nemola, the Greek professor, was really um, delighting in the he used the term innards was his uh, was his way of communicating that 
but it's the emotional context, the fact that we're not robots. We are designed with these, uh, with the capacity for emotional response. Uh, it needs to be kept on biblical basis, and, and we don't run wild with it. But I thought uh, that uh, this this whole realm would be a very profitable realm for, for true study. We won't do that this morning, though. We'll just note it here that the Lord experienced this. He felt compassion for her and said to her, Do not weep. And he came up and touched the coffin, and the bearers came to a halt. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. So there's two commands. The mother's given one command, and the, and the dead man is given another command. Interestingly enough, Jesus is giving an order to a dead man. And uh, the dead man responds uh, as if he actually had a choice in the matter. Uh, he is returned to life. It is a passive imperative. Be raised. And uh, sure enough, that's what happens. So verse 15, the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. Fear gripped them all, and they began glorifying God, saying, and I already read this, a great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his prophet. We'll have more to say about this here in a moment, but don't overlook the pairing of fear and glory. The fact that the fear of the Lord is what promotes and enables the glory to truly take place. When that fear is absent, any glory or glorification we think we're taking part in is phony. It is a, it is a human expression. It's really self-glorification more than anything else. So we'll have more to say about that here in a moment. Verse 17, finally, the, the, this report concerning him went out. Uh, all over Judea and in the surrounding district. It was because that report went out, and it was because the disciples of John the Baptist were able to respond to that report and get that information to the Baptist, then that prompts the uh, material we'll look at in verses uh, 18 down through 35. So, as we deal with it here this morning, the... Uh, we covered through the first six points, if I recall, as of a couple of weeks ago, and we had a week off because of the, the Spokane trip. I don't mind running through it again very quickly. A city called Nain, and we talked about the geography a little bit and um, its location there in Galilee, either in the same location that the Old Testament city of Shunem was located or nearby. There is dispute about that. Uh, but whether they were the same location or nearby, it's it's as close as arguing about a distinction maybe between, uh, uh, you know, the Dowd residence and the Funderburg residence. Okay, you might be off by a couple of houses, but, but big deal. When it's that close, it really effectively makes no difference. Uh, a miracle done here in Nain that is so strikingly similar to the raising of the widow's son there in uh, in Shunem is uh, is clearly identifiable and, and giving us a parallel between Second Kings 4 and Luke chapter 7. Under point 2, we examine the dead man, the fact that it was a perfect active participle, which I just enjoy, the fact that the perfect active participle communicates a past completed action with present ongoing results, such as by grace you have been saved. It is a past completed action with the present ongoing, really eternal results, that we are presently now today having been saved ones. And that is a condition we, we uh, occupy today and will occupy for all eternity. In this verb, though, with the verb thanesco, it's a little bit awkward because the, the perfect active participle of thanesco, to die, means that he has died in the past with the present ongoing results that he continues to be dead. All right. Which, to our way of thinking, is rather absurd. Obviously, anybody that died in the past, whether they died this week or they died last week or last year or 100 years ago, whatever the case, if they have died in the past, of course, the present ongoing results are that they continue to be dead. 
nevertheless, that's what we have here. A having been dead one, uh, a continually having been dead one is being carried out. But he's about to no longer be dead. That's the point, is that he is presently, he has died, he's presently dead, but he's about to be alive once again. And so it really becomes a vivid description here in this verse. That's verse 12. He is an only begotten son, a monogenes huias, monogenes huias. Um, it's, it's unfortunate, I think, that the English rendering of only begotten is so ingrained in three centuries of uh, English usage from John 3.16 and elsewhere, monogenes. Uh, we're accustomed to mono, right? That's our prefix for uh, one, right? Like uh, if it's mono rather than stereo, what does that mean? It means you've got one channel, the left channel of sound. You don't have left and right. Um, monotony, uh, monogamy, you know, you're married to one wife and so forth. Didn't mean to use monotony and monogamy in a interchangeable fashion there. All right. Now, it's interesting if you, the, the, the real argument comes in linguistically and etymologically whether or not genes should come from genao to bear, in which case, only begotten is a good way to render it, if in fact the root behind genes is is ganao to bear, or if the root behind genes there is ganas, which means kind. I find that to be the better etymological application, the better linguistic application of it, the genos meaning kind. When you classify animals, you classify them into uh, kingdom and, and phylum, and there's six of these, I'm forgetting them now, but like the animal kingdom versus mineral or vegetable. And then you've got the phylum and the genus and the species. The last two, whenever you give something its its uh, Latin uh, technical name, is going to be the genus and the species, right? Canines, felines, you're following this? So if you think about genus, G-E-N-U-S, the Latin for kind, and then uh, genos here being in Greek, uh, rather than only begotten, it's best to think of this as one of a kind. One of a kind. And that would be, uh, in my mind, the better translation, not only here, but everywhere where monogenes occurs. John 3.16, God gave his one of a kind, his unique son. There is no other son that can be comparable to Jesus Christ. Now, you and I are sons. We're sons and daughters. We are sons. Adam was called the son of God. When you track the uh, genealogy back from in, in Luke, we've got, what is it, Luke 3, right here, uh, just a few pages over. And in the, in the genealogy there, you know, Jesus, supposedly the son of Joseph, the son of, the son of, the son of, the son of, all the way back through um, David, back through Abraham, back through Adam. But where chapter 3 ends there, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. So there are other aspects where we can think of sons of God. Angels are called sons of God in, in poetic context and other applications. So sonship, as far as monogenes, the only begotten son, um, I think begotten is a poor rendering of it and has been since 1611. That one of a kind would be a better rendering rather than only begotten. And uh, the best, perhaps the best illustration of this is the fact that in Hebrews, 
Isaac is called the only begotten son of of, uh, Abraham, that Abraham by faith offered up his only begotten son. Well, by the time Isaac's even born, Ishmael was alive 14 years. And then after Isaac was born, then there's these five or six other sons born uh, through Keturah. So Isaac was certainly not an only child, but he was unique. He was a one of a kind in the sense that he was the child of promise. He was the miracle baby born uh, to a dead man and a dead mother, whereas Hagar was anything but sexually lost my microphone. Hagar was anything but sexually dead. She was anything but past childbearing age. And likewise, Keturah was certainly not past childbearing age. But Sarah at the age of 90 was truly, uh, you know, postmenopausal or whatever you call that. And she was beyond the point of having having babies. That's what makes Isaac the one of a kind, the unique, the son of promise. So I think if we deal with this as one of a kind, this boy here, you know, he could have had, who knows, any number of siblings, uh, or he could have been an only child. The point being is that he was one of a kind. He was unique. He was irreplaceable. And uh, to this widow, uh, to lose him was a thing of tremendous grief. Jesus Christ was not only an, I, uh, the only begotten of the Father, he was monogamous with respect to Mary. Think about that. He had half brothers, half sisters. He had uh, there was James and Jude and Simon and Joseph and uh, and the sisters. We don't know their names. But despite all of those half siblings, was was Jesus not one of a kind? I mean, he he truly was born of a virgin. He was born uh, with with the uh, miraculous conception. There, he was one of a kind so far as Mary was concerned. Unique compared to his brothers. Anyway, there's a lot more we can do with it. We'll let that go for this morning. Under point four, the Lord felt compassion. We made the observation this is Luke's first use, first narrative use of the Lord as a referent to Jesus. And that being the the significant aspect of it there, that he is identifiable with Adonai, with Yahweh, Jehovah Elohim of the Old Testament. Likewise, the emotions that take place here in verse four. I'm sorry, in, in verse 13. When the Lord saw her, he felt compassion for her. The verb splank needs am I. He was moved. It is an emotional response. Now, is he enslaved to his emotions? No. Is he influenced by his emotions? Yes. So he responds. Is his response an emotional reaction, an emotional response? Or is it a biblical response having been sparked by an emotional uh, impulse? I think that's the more biblical way of explaining it. We can be moved emotionally, but we want to make sure that we respond biblically, as the Lord Jesus Christ does here. Gives two imperatives. Under point five, we saw the mother's imperative, stop weeping. Action already in progress. And so when he tells her don't, it becomes uh, the aspect of stop. Do not weep is better rendered stop weeping. And then the imperative to the dead man, arise. Interestingly enough, why preach to somebody who's dead? Why give a dead man an order? Scholars have debated that through the years. Well, here he's doing so, and the dead man arises. He tells Lazarus, come forth. We'll see that. The the order to return back to physical life is given, and it's an interesting uh, structure when that indeed happens. But the, the man obeys the command. Eris passive imperative of Agero, to wake, to rouse, to waken, to lift up. Uh kind of a normal verb if you're sitting down if you're laying down it's kind of abnormal if you're dead but that's the case of it here he's dead he's being ordered to stand he's being ordered to return to life and that's uh that's what happens here what would it take 
What does it take for a dead body to be reanimated, so to speak? See, what happens when death happens anyway? These are kind of the things we think of as this week or other times when, when physical deaths take place. Well, we have the description in Genesis when, when Rachel dies. It says it came about as her soul was departing for she died. And there's the definition. What happens at physical death is the soul departs from the physical body and the physical body then dies. And, and believers, unbelievers alike, both, we both have souls. Believers have human spirits as well, but uh, every human being has a soul. And when the soul departs from the body, when the soul and body are separated, that is the aspect of physical death. Doctors try to get all complicated about brain death and all these other forms of death when the, uh, when the biological body expires. When the soul's gone, biblically speaking, that person is dead. So when it comes to this guy, now something else we discuss is when it comes to those three in the Old Testament and the three in the New Testament then that are resuscitated, three in the Gospels or a couple more in Acts. When they're resuscitated, where were their souls? Did their souls actually go to heaven or did the souls in the Old Testament, did they go to Abraham's bosom? Where did their souls go when they died? And then what happens when that soul gets re-injected back into the body again and they're commanded to... Uh, they're commanded to uh, to rise. It makes for some interesting study. I don't know that we can firmly come to conclusions on all of these, uh, but perhaps in some upcoming classes, I I expect this will come back again with respect to Jesus' own resurrection because he is specifically told that he has authority to lay down his life and he has authority to take it up again. And uh, the implication there being that when he's in the cross and when he yields up his spirit, he does so as um, exercising the authority that the father had given to him to yield up his spirit. And uh, so his spirit and soul then depart from his physical body and that body then dies physically on the cross. Uh, when it comes to his soul returning back to his body, three days later, you know, after midnight on Sunday morning, Easter Sunday, then his body's restored back to physical life because it's once again, it's occupied by the soul and spirit of the humanity of Jesus Christ. So there's different things you can look at that. When Jesus gives the order here, when he says, be raised, you wonder if, in fact, um, that this boy's soul was actually nearby and different things. I pondered the fact that with the, with Lazarus and with this boy and the and the and Jairus's daughter and so forth, when these people died, that God in His mercy, rather than having the angels carry their soul away to Abraham's bosom like happens with Lazarus in in Luke 15, that what happens is is that the soul departs and then the angels just kind of hang out, <laughs> and that they don't go to heaven. Because imagine the weeping and the sorrow. If you get a glimpse of glory and then Jesus says, no, you've got to go back to that body again. Okay? I, I just, that would, that would just boggle my mind. Although I've read all kinds of people speculate on the, on the whole process about how, why it was that Jesus wept. Because, you know, Lazarus was already in Abraham's bosom. Lazarus was already, uh, you know, being comforted and talking to Abraham and all those wonderful things. And then when Jesus says, you know, come forth, then Lazarus must have really, really hated that. And, uh, and, and they give that as the explanation for why Jesus wept, because it was so cruel to Lazarus to, uh, to bring him back from that, from that place. My personal belief is that their souls never actually get to heaven. 
that God knows that this miracle is coming up. They're going to get restored back to physical life. And so he just simply has the angels there to, to hold those souls until such time as the, the souls are returned to the body. All right. If that makes sense, then I'll move on. Okay. Uh, but it is remarkable that these are commands to be raised and, uh, and uh, the order is given to a dead person who hears the order and who responds. All right. What we want to deal with this morning is fear. Fear gripped them in verse 16. Fear gripped them all. Now, there's different kinds of fear, and it doesn't help the fact that Phobos is used for all these kinds of fear, or in the Old Testament, the Hebrew Yare is used for all these kinds of fear. We draw distinctions. We say that, well, godly fear, the fear of the Lord, which is the beginning of wisdom, that's a reverence. That's a godly reverence and a respect for God's majesty and his word, and that's the godly fear. It's not the same as being scared being terrified of, of uh, you know, you, you feel threatened and so you're scared. And we draw distinctions between the right kind of fear and the wrong kind of fear. And we say, well, if you're scared, that's a sin. If you're worried, that's a sin because that's, that's a lack of faith and we're commanded not to worry and so forth. Um, there's a lot of, I think, wrong ideas on this. I think there's a, there's a, there's a built-in survival instinct that's crafted in humanity. And if someone's holding a gun to your head and you start to, you know, your body physiologically reacts to that impulse, uh, you know, you're gonna, are you gonna be scared if someone jumps out of a dark alleyway and, and holds a gun to your head or something? Or, you know, you're not expecting, something and then all of a sudden somebody walks out and says boo and you jump is that a mental attitude do you have to confess that we say oh father i was scared i had a lack of faith i confess to you that i should have been more mature no you just got scared it was a you know a physiological reaction relax about that a little bit okay well we draw those distinctions we have a godly fear which is reverence and we have this sinful fear which is ooh, you know confess that well that distinction we draw in the English language actually is not found in either the Hebrew yare or in the Greek phobos. Uh, phobia, phobos is the same word that's used here, which I believe to be the godly reverence form of fear, uh, and would be the same one when, you know, Jesus is walking across the water and they think it's a ghost and they're all scared. Um, it's the same phobos. Fear gripped them and they began glorifying God. Now, glorifying God. Under subpoint A, under glorifying God, we find that this is a pattern that has preceded this event, takes place at this event, and continues to take place um, more or less at various stages of Jesus Christ's ministry. We want to stop to recognize that Jesus Christ did not come to glorify himself. He was not in the business of promoting himself. He was in the business of obeying the Father. And he was in the business of glorifying the Father. And through seeing Christ, these people now are able to glorify the Father by virtue of seeing the miracle that Jesus is doing. So let's get a sampling of these verses. And then uh, with the time we have remaining, I want to, uh, if we have time remaining at the end of this service, I want to uh, go back to a study we did in 1 Corinthians 6 that related to glorifying God and make sure that we're, that we're clear on our, on our vocabulary there. So Matthew chapter 5, these concepts of glorifying God. Back to Matthew 5, Sermon on the Mount. Verse 16. 
let your light shine. This is a, a passive imperative. Um, you don't have to do anything except let it happen. You have to make sure that you're not taking steps to hinder it from happening. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. So it's not just coming to Bible class. It's not just what we learn that does this. It's what we do. It's how we live the Word of God so that when others view us living the Word of God, their observation of us living the Word of God produces the glory for God the Father. Because we stand as an exhibit, as a witness to His glory in this lost and dying world. So let your light shine before men in such a way that they may, they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Jesus raised this boy from the dead. These people saw His good work. And because of that, they glorified uh, God the Father who is in heaven. So does that mean that you and I have to raise people from the dead in order to, to produce that response? No. It does mean, though, that we have to be obedient to the Father's work assignment, to the Father's will. We're in the Word of God, we're studying, we're growing, and we're applying the Word in every circumstance. And when we do that, others who see us living the Word then glorify the Father. Over in chapter 9, Matthew 9, 8. And um, this fellow, this paralytic lying on the bed and... and uh, Jesus said, your sins are forgiven, and they all got worked up over that, <laughs> because only God can forgive sins, and Jesus says, bingo, you're right, only God can forgive sins, guess who you're talking to, and then he says, you know, which is easier, your sins are forgiven, or rise up and walk, and so he'll do the harder to let them know that he has authority to do the easier, to testify that he is, in fact, God on earth, God with us, uh, the word become flesh, and uh, he says, pick up your, your pallet and pick up your bed and go home. He does. He gets up and he goes home. And when the crowd saw this, they were awestruck and glorified God who had given such authority to men. There it is again. They see your good works and they're able to glorify accordingly. Now, if all you are is just constantly Bible class only and you never live it, people can't see that and they won't be able to give glory. Matthew fifteen thirty one. Uh, went along by the Sea of Galilee, having gone up on the mountain. He was sitting there. Large crowds came to him, bringing with them those who were lame, crippled, blind, mute, and many others. And they laid them down at his feet, and he healed them. So the crowd marveled as they saw the, the moot, mute. Fred Mailer always appreciated the pronunciation moot. I always find that awkward. They're both acceptable according to the best English dictionaries. The crowd marveled as they saw the moot speaking, the crippled restored, and the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. Recognizing God's word in action produces this glory. Luke chapter 2 and verse 20. Luke 2. What's happening in Luke 2? What do you think of when you think Luke 2? Yeah, Christmas. It's a Christmas story. Birth of our Savior. And in Luke 2, verse 20, the shepherds went back glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen, just as had been told them. Now, it's interesting in Greek, we've got glorifying, doxazo, and praising. Um, it's interesting because both activities are largely synonymous. Both activities are largely interchangeable. We'll talk about that here in a moment. But in this passage, we have both terms used in parallel. 
glorifying and praising. How else do you glorify besides praising? We'll describe that here in a moment. Um, that's Luke 2. Two more. Luke 13, 13. He laid his hands on her. This is uh, this woman who for 18 years had a sickness caused by a spirit. and She was bent double and could not straighten up at all. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your sickness. And he laid his hands on her. Immediately she was made erect again and began glorifying God. Of course, it was the Sabbath, so that was a big problem with the Pharisees and the synagogue officials and so forth. But there's the response to what? Once again, Jesus Christ doing the work. Letting your light shine in such a way that, uh, that men will see uh, your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Matthew 5.16 Then the last one, Luke 23.47 And interestingly enough, these opportunities come even in, in the midst of and in spite of the conflict and the disapproval. Um, and the Lord didn't really care about that disapproval. He was focused on obeying His Father and providing for that glory opportunity. Finally, Luke 23, 47, uh, Jesus crying out with a loud voice said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. And that's, that's almost word for word the description Randy gave me on, on Nell Bean's passing was that, that she was with a nurse there that morning and she let out a one final exhale and no more attempt to even inhale after that. It was, it was over. What an opportunity. So uh, into thy hands I commit my spirit, having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had happened, he began praising God, saying, certainly this man was innocent. The word there translated praising is our concept here for doxazo, glorifying. Now, we'll have some more to say about that. How do I glorify? I'm going to hold off on that for a little bit, but just for this moment, how do I glorify? It, the biggest problem I think I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to underline it and see. You tell me. The biggest part with glorify is right there. The FY for glorify. Why is that a problem? Think about other English words with phi. Okay? You think of any? How about purify? Okay? So if I'm going to purify something, what do I do? I make it pure. That's right. I, I do something. I go through a process. I take an action that the result of which is I, I have changed something from impure to pure. Or from less pure to more pure. I may not make it totally pure, but it, I am changing it so that it is more pure than it was when I started. Maybe even I'll make it 100% totally pure. Okay, but purify... Uh, means I am affecting something that was less pure or, or totally impure, and now I've made it either more pure or totally pure. And so the phi indicates something I'm doing that changes this. Okay? Maybe I'm mystifying you with this explanation. Do you feel mystified? See, if I mystify you, then that means I have affected you. I have done something, once again, to change you from a condition of understanding what's going on to a condition of total bewilderment. What's he talking about? He's mystified me. Okay? 
There's other fying that we can do. And I think the problem is we take a concept like glorify and we realize, you know, that just just doesn't work. Because there's nothing I can do that would change God's glory. I'm not producing any more glory for God than he already had from eternity past. So it's not like I'm purifying God. It's not like I'm glorifying God. See, you seeing the parallel here? If I purify something, then I'm changing it from impure to pure. I'm improving it. That's, we can't say that with glorifying because I'm not affecting God and taking him from, a, from less glory and giving him more glory. Right? If, if, if I'm doing that, then I just destroyed uh, immutability, didn't I? <laughs> God's not immutable if something I can do can, can make him more glorious. No, God is eternally, infinitely glorious, always has been, always will be. He is now, that never changes. So we have to recognize that in our English word that maybe glorify is, is a bad way to, to think of that. Maybe we ought to find a better way to relate. What does it mean to glorify? What does it mean to uh, to doxadzo. Maybe we need a better English rendering of the verb doxadzo that better relates what doxadzo uh, truly deals with. And so, as our time remains this morning, I'll use the study we did in 1 Corinthians 6 to, uh, to illustrate that a little bit better. In 1 Corinthians 6, we have the verse that says, For you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God with your bodies. And we taught bodily glorification at that time. And uh, I double-checked this morning. I have the slideshow from when we did that uh, a couple years ago. And uh, uh, we'll be able to share some of those uh, slides here this morning. All right, so that's point A. Uh, they glorified God. You will note, though, that in all of these circumstances, the glory was verbal. The glory was verbal. Celebrating, rejoicing at uh, what they had observed. All right, secondly... I'll give you both of these, secondly and thirdly. Because as they glorified, they made two statements. The, their glory, which was verbal, was communicated in two ways. First, that a great prophet had arisen, and second, that God had visited his people. Both of which are recognitions of Old Testament truth. I listed Deuteronomy 18.15 there under B. I did not list the Old Testament truth in point C, but we can certainly do that. Uh, we can go back to Isaiah and we can get the Emmanuel, God with us, recognition. And we can identify the fact that God with us is, in fact, an Old Testament prophecy, an Old Testament promise, and they were seeing it before their very eyes. God has visited his people. Well, first of all, a great prophet has arisen. He's turned water to wine He's done a number of healings. He's cast out a couple of demons. He's done, uh, he's done a, a number of miracles up to now. He hasn't done the big famous ones. He hasn't fed 5,000. He hasn't walked on water. Uh, there's some of the biggies coming up still. He hasn't done quite yet. But for those that are following him, the raising of this widow's son is the, the pinnacle, the ultimate. It's the biggest thing he's done yet. And if you think about miracles, what could be harder than restoring physical life? All right. He'll do it two more times, three more times if he can't himself. OK, this is the greatest of the miracles that's, that's imaginable. And so they say here, a great prophet 
has arisen. This is their first item of glory. A great prophet has arisen. Now, to understand this, we've got to turn back to Deuteronomy 18. Deuteronomy 18.15. This is a passage that is so twisted and misapplied by cults throughout history and even today. Let's spend some time with it. And if you're not exposed to that, then I'll expose you to, to the concept this morning. And you'll be kind of dumbfounded, mystified. Deuteronomy 18.15. Now... There's a whole context for this. Um, this a passage starts off with uh, material here about the, Levit- uh, the, Levit- the Levites, Levitical priesthood. And then some things with demonism in verses 9 and following. The fact that the nations they're about to go conquer were full of demons. That they practice witchcraft and divination. They sacrifice that child sacrifice and a lot of this other stuff. Uh, but then it gets to verse 15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your countrymen. You shall listen to him. Now, there's more to that and I'll, I'll get to verses 16 and following. But keep in mind, this comes in in the context of where... Moses is promising them that they are going to occupy the land. He's, he's going to die here in, in Deuteronomy is five farewell messages. He's going to die. Joshua is going to take Israel into the promised land. They're going to conquer. They're going to live in the land. And in that setting, Moses then gives this, this prophecy that there is a great prophet coming. Now, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet. You say, well, big deal. <laughs> There's dozens of prophets, right? There's Elijah, there's Elisha, there's Samuel, there's, there's uh, Nathan, there's uh, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, you know, all through Malachi. There's scads of prophets. What are you talking about? What's the big deal about this? This is a unique prophet. This is a prophet that is unlike all those other prophets that will come up later in Israel's history. This is a unique prophet. All right. And, the, and he, first of all, he's a prophet like me. Okay. And every other prophet that ever followed Moses was not quite like Moses, were they? There was no prophet like Moses until Jesus Christ. If you, if you stop to think about how he knew God face to face, if you stop to think about how intimate he was with Yahweh Elohim, if you start to realize how, what a national leader he was as now he went he was never crowned as king but there's no question that he was the political leader moses was the political leader for israel when he brought them out of the uh, of egypt and he led them through the wilderness and uh, he never was a priest because he invested that in his brother aaron and aaron became the first high priest but he did offer sacrifices as a priest so when you think about Moses, there are prophet, priest, and king um, aspects to Moses, but he was certainly a great prophet, unique, and not even Samuel. Samuel, we would say, was the second greatest prophet of the Old Testament, but not even Samuel uh, was to the point where he ruled the whole nation of Israel and where he led them from bondage or did, did such things as that. So first of all, we notice in verse 15 that it's like me. Also, it's from among you. He would be a Jewish prophet from your countrymen. Uh, and you shall listen to him. He would be a Bible teacher and would have would have uh, a message to communicate. Verse 16. 
This is according to all that you asked of the Lord your God in Horeb on the day of the assembly, saying, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God. Let me not see this great fire anymore, or I will die. And the Lord said to me, They have spoken well. I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you, and I will put my words in his mouth, which is why Jesus didn't communicate his own message, but he delivered the message of the Father. I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. It shall come about that whoever will not listen to my words, which he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. All right. And it goes on down through the end of the chapter. Now, the problem with this, this is a text that has been totally twisted by any number of cults in the ancient world and throughout the history of the church and on even into modern times. Um, the Lord will raise up a prophet like me. The Quran says that's Muhammad. The Quran says that Jesus was simply uh, one of a long string of prophets and there was one final prophet left to go, the greatest of Allah's prophets, which is Muhammad. And even Moses spoke of Muhammad when he said that the Lord God would raise up a prophet like me. And so in, to, the, to the Muslims today... One billion of them around the globe. Muhammad is the fulfillment of Deuteronomy 18.15. Two Mormons today. Guess who they picked out to fulfill Deuteronomy 18.15? That's right, Joseph Smith. He is the prophet that God said he would raise up like Moses and so forth. And, and that's why Joseph Smith, who gave, like Moses gave the law, Joseph Smith gave the, uh, the Book of Mormon and the Pearl of Great Price and their various other... There's five total, but the, the various writings of Joseph Smith that they accept as being the, uh, the Third Testament, the, the Bible for Latter-day Saints. A lot of cults use, uh, use this promise. Well, the Bible tells us that this was fulfilled. In Acts 3.22, we learn that it wasn't Joseph Smith and it wasn't uh, Muhammad. That when Moses said a prophet would rise up, he was talking about Jesus Christ. And um, in Peter's message here, he says, And now, brethren, I know that you acted in ignorance, just as your rulers did also. But the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. That the ministry of Jesus Christ was the fulfillment of what those Old Testament prophets were dealing with therefore repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the lord and that he may send jesus the christ appointed for you jesus the christ okay the one and the only there will be a legitimate question coming up next week on whether or not there could be more than one christ and there was lots of debate about uh, among the rabbis, among the Old Testament scholars prior to Christ, uh, because they had a lot of messianic prophecies, they had a lot of expectations on what the Christ would do, and there was a debate. What about that prophet Moses mentioned? Is he the same as the Christ? Or is he going to be a partner to the Christ? Kind of like the forerunner. Malachi spoke of a forerunner. Isaiah spoke of a forerunner. So they had this idea, okay, there's going to be a forerunner, then there's going to be the Christ. And so they would debate amongst themselves. What about that prophet that Moses talked about? Is that going to be the forerunner? Or is that going to be the Christ? 
Or is that going to be maybe a third person? Are there, is there a prophet, a forerunner, and the Christ? So until the things were fulfilled, there was a legitimate question being asked. But what about that, that uh, Mosaic prophet, that Deuteronomy 18.15 prophet? What about the forerunner? What about the Christ? And they had those questions, legitimate questions, ahead of time. Now that it's fulfilled, though, those questions are settled. That that Mosaic prophet was not the forerunner. That that Mosaic prophet was identified with the Christ, with the Messianic prophecies. And so that's all been resolved. With hindsight, we can look back and with the record of Scripture, we can, we can validate that, that uh, the Mosaic prophet there in Deuteronomy 18.15 was, in fact, identified with the Christ. Um, that he may send Jesus, the Christ, one and only, appointed for you, whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things. In other words, he's in heaven until second advent, about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient time. Second advent is not a mystery. Second advent has been prophesied uh, for ages. Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. To him you shall give heed to everything he says to you. So here, Peter is quoting Deuteronomy 18.15 under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he's applying that to Jesus Christ in his first advent. And it will be that every soul that does not heed to that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among his people. Likewise, all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and his successors onward also announced these days. Two greatest Old Testament prophets were Moses and Samuel, and Peter cites them both right here. It is you who are the sons of the prophets and are the covenant which God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. For you first, God raised up his servant. You know who that is? That's not Moses. That's not Samuel. That's Jesus Christ. For you first, God raised up his servant and sent him to bless you by turning every one of you from your wicked ways. Well, they didn't exactly like that message, but that's okay. Um, so that's the first item of glory. God, uh, a great prophet has arisen. The second, God has visited his people. Now, a visitation is not just simply dropping in and seeing what's in the fridge. Okay? And dropping in and putting your feet up and, and chewing the fat. Okay? It's not a visit. Not in the biblical sense of a visitation. This is actually the presence for blessing. That God is here. That he's not just visiting. He is actually observing what needs to be done. And he's taking care of it. Alright. Luke 1.68. This is the promise. At the, uh, the prophecy at the birth of John the baptizer. His father, Zacharias, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people, raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant. So visiting is not just showing up and hanging out. Visiting is arriving and providing blessing, providing redemption, providing what's needed. Luke 19.44. Luke is the author real fond of this word, isn't he? Luke 19:44 And the uh, weeping over Jerusalem And uh, the day will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side 
and they will level you to the ground and your children within you, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. First advent of Jesus Christ. All right, God has visited his people. These people recognized it. These people, when the widow's son was raised, they recognized it. And because of that, they glorified God. Most of the Jews, though, did not. And uh, they invited the wrath of God upon them when they said, His blood be upon us and upon our children. All right. Finally, the report concerning him went out. The report concerning him went out. Luke seven seventeen. Reports are not gossip. We are to have a good report. It's a requirement for a pastor that he be of good report or good reputation. Um, when a report goes out, for instance, I enjoy hearing good reports of uh, great things. I spoke to Stan Newton on the phone yesterday, and I enjoy good reports for what's happening in, in North Carolina or when I visit other churches. I enjoy good reports. That's not gossiping. That's simply celebrating the fact that you know we're not the only local church in the universe. There's other churches out there. There's faithful pastors. The word's being taught. Tell me some of the neat things that are taking place. All right. The deacon of Spokane that's going to try to start a seminary in Nigeria. And he's going to try to replicate what Jim Myers is doing in Kiev. He's going to try to create that in Nigeria. And uh, VMI is going to help him get that set up. And one of the VMI uh, native missionaries there, uh, Matthias Adi, is going to be, uh, or Adi, he's going to be uh, kind of the, the lead man on the ground there for getting this started. I like hearing that kind of stuff. That's a good report. Tell me more. All right. And then they invite you to go to Nigeria and teach for two weeks in their in their Bible college. <laughs> Saying, no thanks, I can't go everywhere. <laughs> you know, get somebody that's not pastoring a church already. You know, get somebody over there to teach. Anyway, the report went out. That's not gossip. It's a good thing. All right, that's a good thing. And being able to testify that God has visited us and that a great prophet has arisen means that more uh, believers are going to be prepared to receive their Christ. And perhaps some unbelievers will wake up to realize the sense of urgency and uh, and become saved. Um, and it's because this report goes out in verse 17, then, that uh, the episode which follows, we'll get into this next week, uh, the disciples of John, that's the baptizer, reported to him about all these things. And so he summons two of his disciples, and John sends them to the Lord saying, Are you the expected one, or do we look for someone else? And we'll deal with that next week, because John really gets criticized for this as being a weak sister, some kind of a, uh, you know, this is a moment of, of panic, or he's just all of a sudden, he's stumbling, and he's, he's, uh, he's sad, or he's, you know, there's a lot of commentary on this that really, really runs John down for basically being an idiot, okay? And uh, I find that to be totally inconsistent with the description Jesus Christ said that he's the greatest of those born among women. Let's, let's start to examine maybe there's something behind his question here that we uh, haven't completely understood. So we'll deal with that next week. Edersheim gives a good treatment on this, and I wanted to take the time to do that. We've got some time remaining. Edersheim, you ever read his Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah? It's a good read. Somebody bought that last week, and they were telling me they found it for $2 at Good Books. Not good books, half-price books. Who was telling me that? Somebody was, Sunday morning. They found it in half-price books. $2. I said, oh, that's pretty good. 
It must have been Linty. I think Linty was talking about. Life and times of Jesus the Messiah, chapter 20. The raising of the young man of Nain, the meaning of life and death. I enjoyed the way he put that. The meaning of life and death. From St. Luke 7, 11 through 17. Uh, that early spring tide in Galilee was surely the truest realization of the picture in the Song of Solomon when earth clad herself in garments of beauty and the air was melodious with songs of new life. It seemed as if each day marked a widening circle of the deepest sympathy and largest power on the part of Jesus, as if each day also brought fresh surprise, new gladness, opened hitherto unthought of possibilities, and pointed Israel far beyond the horizon of their narrow expectancy. People don't write like that anymore. You notice that? Yesterday, it was the sorrow of the heathen centurion which woke an echo in the heart of the, of the supreme commander of life and death. Faith called out, owned, and placed on the high platform of Israel's worthies. Today, it is the same sorrow of a Jewish mother which touches the heart of the Son of Man, I'm sorry, touches the heart of the Son of Mary and appeals to where denial is unthinkable. In that presence, grief and death cannot continue, as the defilement of a heathen house uh, could not attach to him. Uh, whose contact changed the Gentile stranger into a true Israelite, so could the touch of death not render unclean him whose presence vanquished and changed it into life. And I didn't point that out. When Jesus touched the coffin, you know what he did? He broke, in some people's eyes, the law because he was touching an unclean thing. At the moment when you touched an unclean thing, you became unclean. And you were unworthy to participate in the solemn assembly and so forth. Now, he wasn't committing a sin, but in the eyes of some of these Pharisees now, he would be ritually unclean, unworthy. You weren't worried about that? He touched the coffin, said, come to a stop, brought the man back to life. So I guess he wasn't an unclean thing. He's alive, right? <laughs> Any event, I continue. Um, Jesus could not enter Nain and its people pass by him to carry one dead to the burying. I thought that was interesting. For our present purpose, it matters little whether it was the very day after the healing of the centurion servant or shortly afterwards that Jesus left Capernaum for Nain. Probably it was the morrow of that miracle, and the fact that much people, or rather a great multitude, followed him seems confirmatory of it. The way was long, as we reckon, more than 25 miles, but even if it was all taken on foot, there could be no difficulty in reaching Nain ere the evening when so often funerals took place. Various roads led to and from Nain. That which stretches to the Lake of Galilee and up to Capernaum is quite distinctly marked. It is difficult to understand how most of those who had visited the spot could imagine the place where Christ met the funeral procession to have been the rock-hewn tombs of the, to the west of Nain towards Nazareth. Yeah, that's where a lot of commentators say, well, this was on the western side of town, you know, towards Nazareth, because that's where they, today, that's where archaeologists have found some, some tombs. Well, he wasn't coming from there. He was coming from Capernaum. For from Capernaum, the Lord would not have come that way, but approached it from the northeast by Endor. Hence, there can be little doubt that, that uh, Canon Tristam correctly identifies the now unfenced burying ground about ten minutes' walk to the east of Nain as that whither on that spring afternoon they were carrying the widow's son. On the path leading to it, the Lord of life, for the first time, burst open the gates of death. I thought that was such a neat way of phrasing that. It is all desolate now, a few houses of mud and stone with low doorways scattered among heaps of stones and traces of walls is all that remains of what uh, even these ruins show to have been once a city uh, with walls and gates. The rich gardens are no more, the fruit trees cut down, and there is a painful sense of desolation about the place as if the breath of judgment had swept over it. And yet even so we can understand its ancient 
name of Nain, the pleasant, which the rabbis regarded as fulfilling that part of the promise to Issachar, he saw the land that it was pleasant. From the elevation on which the city stood, we looked northward across the wide plain of, to wooded Tabor and in the far distance to snow-capped Hermon. On the left, in the west, rises the hills beyond which Nazareth lies embosomed. To the right is Endor, southward Shunem, and beyond it the plain of Jezreel. By this path from Endor comes Jesus with his disciples and the great following multitude. Here, nearby the city gate, on the road that leads eastward to the old burying ground, has this procession of the great multitude which accompanied the Prince of Life met that other great multitude that followed the dead to his burying. Which one of the two shall give way to the other? We know what ancient Jewish usage would have demanded. For all the duties uh, enjoined, none more strictly enforced by every consideration of humanity and piety, even by the example of God himself, that the, than that of conf uh, conf comforting the mourners and showing respect to the dead by accompanying him to the burying. In other words, the normal practice would be they're trying to go into the gate, they're coming out of the gate, and the normal practice would be that those that are entering would give way, they would stand off to the side, they would allow the funeral procession to pass, and then... Instead of just going on about their business on into the city, they would actually follow the procession out and they would observe the, the burial rites. The popular idea that the spirit of the dead hovered about the unburied remains must have given intensity to such feelings. Putting aside later superstitions, so little has changed in the Jewish rites and observances about the dead and goes on to describe the, uh, the uh, conditions or the, uh, the activities that uh, take place at a typical burial. I guess I'm going to stop the reading there, but the uh, I just enjoyed the description there where the, the two companies were, were coming together. Which of the two shall give way to the other? The procession of the great multitude which accompanied the Prince of Life met the other great multitude that followed the dead to his bearing. Which of the two shall give way to the other? I thought, what a what a description. All right. That's the issue there. We did not get to, we've got two minutes left, the issues on glory. So let me just wrap up with that, and then we'll take some questions. Um, this was a study we did in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, where it says, I think verse 19, Therefore you have been, glorified with the, or you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God with your body. Well, what does it mean to glorify? Is it like purify? Is it something I do? Am I changing what's there by my actions? No. And so as we defined this, okay, it's verse 20. You've been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. The idea of glory being the imperative of doxazo. D-O-X-A-Z-O, doxazo, number 1392. What we want to keep in mind with doxazo is that it comes from a verb that, that impacts our thinking. Dokeo is a thinking verb. Dakeo means that you have a judgment or a view. You have an estimation of something's worth. See, like you're at a estate sale, a garage sale, a grocery store. You're looking at something and you're, you're examining it. You're coming to a judgment. Is that really worth $20? And you have to dakeo. You have to put some thought into it. Now, doxa then is where you've, you value it. You honor it. You, you esteem the fact that it is indeed worthy. You're examining whatever it is, and you come, oh, yeah, of course, it's worth 20 bucks. Oh, it's worth 40 bucks. I'd pay 80 bucks for that, okay? And so you have made an evaluation that it is worthy. 
So you have docaoed, and you've come to the conclusion that this thing is doxa, that this thing is worthy of praise, worthy of glory. It is of intrinsic worth. And so doxa for glory is uh, a noun that it relates to an opinion, a judgment, or a view, and it's translated as praise, honor, or glory. And so doxazo then to formulate that view, to cause somebody to hold that view. Now, it doesn't change the intrinsic value. The value is what it is. But now I'm going to come along and I'm going to influence you so that you have the same value about this thing's worth that I have. Okay? So I'm looking at this and, and I think that it's, it's worth 20 bucks. Sharon looks at it and says, that's not even worth $5. I wouldn't give $2 for that, okay? So now I go through the process of communicating to her what this great worth really is. And I communicate to her why it is that I value this, I appreciate this, why this is worthy, what's so special about this. And when I communicate that to her, I'm not intrinsically changing anything with this. I'm not changing this at all. All I'm doing, though, is I'm influencing her attitude towards it. I'm communicating to her why it's so important so that maybe she will gain the same appreciation that I have for whatever item it is I'm looking at. I'm trying to convince her why I want to spend $20. All right? So, when we glorify God, we're not, we're not changing his intrinsic character or glory we're not affecting him whatsoever what we're doing though is communicating how the worth we we sense and we're communicating that to somebody else so they can gain the same appreciation the same worthiness the same sense they can join us in that appreciation and that value that's what glorify is and so to influence one's opinion about another so as to enhance the latter's reputation and so when I get down here to my own, there's, there's Hebrew in here as well, kavod and yahav and different things. But, and then the sacrifices were expected to bring. But when I gave my definition, there it was. It means to, to, to glorify, means to communicate and or demonstrate by thought, word, and deed the high regard of worthiness that God's being is due. That's what it means to glorify. To communicate, and it could be verbal, call that praise but it could be nonverbal. it could be your actions when you came to bible class this morning by your very action you communicated that god was worthy of your attention this morning that god was worthy of your time he was worthy of your being here he was worthy he took a priority over other things you could have done this morning so by coming here your actions communicated how worthy you view him you demonstrated and communicated by your deeds the high regard of worthiness that God's being is due. So by attending Bible class this morning, you are glorifying God. That's what it means to glorify. And that's what we'll, uh, we'll pick up on next week. Do we have any questions? Anything at all with respect to this? All right, because the... the, the aftermath of this as this report goes out as these people communicate how worthy god is um the john the baptist gets those reports and now he's starting to really wonder uh 
how these things are all going to start taking shape. So we'll deal with John the Baptist next week. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for your faithfulness, for your mercy, love, and grace. We do uh, continue to look to you to guide and direct our paths. We thank you that the word of God is faithful in this regard. Uh, Father, we, we do lift up the Bean family, and we thank you for the privilege of coming alongside and participating in, in these events. We thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.